When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. <clears throat> AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news, sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Dealing with pests can be a pain, but relax, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. If your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. A production of iHeartRadio. Hello, welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. My name is Noel. They call me Ben. We're joined, as always, with our super producer, Paul, Mission Control, Deccant. Most importantly, you are you. You are here. And that makes this the stuff they don't want you to know. Thank you in advance, fellow conspiracy realists, for everyone who reached out to us as individuals or as a show. Henry Kissinger is dead. We may do an episode on Kissinger. Um, I don't know about you guys. I, for one, remain astonished by how many people don't know a ton about Dude. his uh, war criminals' activities. Me, me being one of them. Like, we were talking a little bit off mic, or off air, I guess. Uh, and I think largely what I know about him is what was in the um, Oliver Stone Nixon movie and just stuff that I've talked about with you. But I, I for one, would love to do a deep dive into him because— he obviously was a very problematic figure, very um, important figure in terms of moving the tide of history for the worse. And, yeah, I, I want to know more about these uh, these war crimes and his conspiratorial activities and getting us deeper and deeper into Vietnam. Yeah, the, the real politic with that one was strong. Yes, agreed. And as you guys know, I um, I have I have seen Kissinger live. Which sounds like a weird like, I saw Zeppelin, baby. <laughs> from some some dude from Portland or whatever. That's awesome. No offense, Robert. But speaking of our pal, our good friend Robert Evans, uh, in the meantime, uh, before we get to the Kissinger episode, check out the fantastic Behind the Bastard series on Kissinger, which is out now in totality. Kissinger is dead, but 
for how long? That's right, folks. We're asking about mortality today. A bit of a, Noel, you called it a sister episode to a uh, recent episode we did, Who Wants to Live Forever? Mortality The ability to stay alive is the one thing you cannot buy, borrow, or steal your way out of, no matter how much money you have. Sorry, Mr. Musk. The history of humanity's most powerful people is also at heart a history of people who tried and failed at every point so far to attain immortality, to cheat death. Soon that may no longer be the case. These folks may die, and if they have their way, they may return. If this occurs, civilization is woefully unprepared. Here are the facts. I mean, it's it's a sci-fi trope uh, that we see all the time about like successful versions of this technology, and it's the kind of prescient sci-fi that we might see actually come to fruition. You know, uh, decades removed from from the fiction, but the facts indeed um, are around the idea of mortality um, and how we really need to understand the concept of life expectancy, right, in order to kind of wrap our heads around what a lot of this stuff means. Yeah, to understand mortality. And, you know, we're talking about this a little bit off air. This is a technology episode, so we're going to breeze through uh, some stuff that you need to know. You may encounter, you may have encountered some of this in previous episodes. We'll keep it very brief. Life expectancy is just the number of years that uh, that scientific bodies and institutions expect the average person to live from the moment of birth, from cradle to the grave. Shout out DMX. According to the United Nations, if you are alive in 2023, as we record this globally, the life expectancy is a little bit north of 73 calendar years, about 73 and a half well, less years. This is a tricky number because it varies so widely from country to country, from region to region. There's also a divide among biological sex, which is, of course, not the same as gender. And it's, of course, up historically, right? Like, I mean, life expectancy in the olden times was much, much shorter uh, due to lack of medical technology and understanding and things like uh, diseases that were not able to be mitigated. And so, you know, life ex- life is good overall. Um, but there are parts of the country where the life expectancy is lower, which is, you know, again, due to probably less development and uh, less control over some of these uh, mitigating circumstances. We got all kinds of fun things to thank for that, right? Uh, medical advances, changing the way we eat and what we eat, all kinds of good stuff. Yeah, this trend toward longer life, as you guys pointed out, is the result of a lot of things that sometimes get ignored. Sanitation was a huge, huge uh, improvement. Um, Genetics play a role, of course. You know, there's a reason that the average height of human beings is a single number, but uh, there are countries like the Philippines and countries like the Netherlands where people are on uh, the far end of either spectrum, right, with height. And the same thing applies to how long you can expect to live. Uh, We have science to thank for the dramatic improvement in human life expectancy. Between 2000 and 2016, the average life expectancy increased by 5.5 years globally. And some of the places with the lowest life expectancies experienced the highest improvements. Again, uh, science. Science informs good public policy. And 
just like the earlier example of um, light switches and DNA modification in a previous episode, there is a problem with these improvements. They sound ostensibly good, yet these same improvements in life expectancy create unintended consequences. Many countries, the majority, I would argue, simply are not prepared for the amount of people who are living longer than their forebearers. These economic social systems that were designed with the assumption that people would die at a certain age, they're just not ready. I mean, uh, many experts predict that the population growth of the world overall is slowing down, but a slowdown in growth doesn't mean growth stops. We're going to check the world clock. Shout out to Worldometer. Uh, There are, does anybody want to do the honors here? Oh man, this is, this is your baby. You must have this thing like, as like a home button on your phone. This is a, I I, I look forward to this moment, but I had to replace, I had to replace the Kissinger app. Um, So current world population right now is 8,076,266,719,20,23,25. What a weird little number to watch that last one. That keep you busy. Now it's at 35. Holy crap. Yeah. Uh, we talked about this a good bit in the uh, life extension episode or the live forever episode is like, sure. In theory, that sounds cool, but we 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 don't have resources to sustain the people that are currently living. Uh, when, not to mention mixing in that you know increased life expectancy. So um, I think a lot of the stuff we're talking about today is kind of an interesting alternative in a way. I mean, there is some macabre kind of Black Mirror esque stuff about it, but the idea of maybe not actually letting people become continued eternal resource sucks but in fact be more like virtual versions that you can sort of play with, like a Teddy Ruxpin. Absolutely. And just to point out here, the social security program here in the U.S., when we're thinking about like the pressure that, you know, this life expectancy is putting on these systems, it's insane. You can go to ssa.gov and just check out how many people are going to get or theoretically will get social security benefits uh, over time, from like 1970 up until uh, the 2000s and 2020. And it's just like, it's crazy to see the number of human beings that are going to have to take that benefit that everybody pays into and how if it continues at this rate, there's no way we're going to be able to afford it as a, a country. Does that mean that the Social Security that the three of us have been paying into, there will come a time where that money is just gone and we're no longer going to be able to benefit from it? That time occurred probably in your late 20s. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I get so cranky about taxes because, I mean, again, not to be like, I went to Europe and it was perfect. But it's like people that live there and are citizens pay a lot of taxes, admittedly. But for their taxes, they get stuff. I don't know what I get for my other than the privilege of being an American citizen. My well, roads are, shit, you know, my insurance is terrible. The market, whatever insurance for the Obamacare stuff is terrible. It's expensive and you don't really get much for it. It's embarrassing, man. Well, you're supporting uh, wars and coups across I don't the want planet. That. <laughs> well, that's the reason why I, I think I mentioned this earlier. You know, nobody gets to determine in the United States which portion of their tax payment goes to what sort of program. And to your point, Matt, Social Security has been treated as a slush fund by Congress for quite some time. Whoops. Uh, it doesn't <laughs> it, it doesn't always matter to those folks in the halls of power because they are retired and on the lecture circuit uh, in private industry or and so on well after. 
so with this, like to your point, Matt, there is clearly a um, uh, an event horizon, right? There is an inflection point at which at which juncture this stuff come becomes unsustainable. So what happens when you add a twist to the equation? What happens when people don't just die, but are resurrected in such a way that they still participate? in in some fashion in the system. Uh, we know that there are a couple of ways in which folks can already be brought back from the dead. I think, do we ever do an episode on near-death experiences? I believe we did. Oh, we had to, or at the very least, it certainly come up. Well, we, you know, we did Divine Intervention, which I think had a lot of crossover with near-death experiences. Um, but yeah, no, you're right, Ben. There's there's kind of two handles to this thing, if that's an expression that I didn't just make up. There is a lot of interesting science around the idea of physically being resurrected or, or being brought back from the dead like Lazarus, which we're going to get to. And there's the other handle, um, which is the tech side, which we're going to get to as well. But let's talk about the what it means to die and like what what that looks like physiologically and how that can actually vary more than people might think. Yeah, there are three uh, there are three broad categories of death. One of which is hilarious. There's clinical death. That's where your breathing and your blood flow stop. And in that case, uh, this may be the experience of some of us listening this evening, fellow conspiracy realists, clinical death is something people can come back from. Uh, yeah, you, you hear that. They were yeah. clinically dead, you know, mm-hmm. and then boom, they, yep, they saw the light. Yeah, and there's a window. There's, there's a quick window. The heart stops. There's some sort of cardiac arrest. You have about four minutes from cardiac arrest to the development of serious brain damage. And, and there are, of course, multiple exceptions to this, multiple miraculous stories, Lazarus syndrome, Lazarus phenomenon. But uh, clinical death is where intervention techniques like CPR or the paddles whoosh, whoosh, clear. Poof, that's where that stuff comes into play. It's imperfect, but it does save lives. And then there's the funny one, legally dead. Have you guys ever, you guys have heard of legally dead? Is that like being legally blonde? <laughs> it's like, it's like peak bureaucracy. Yeah. You can be legally dead and biologically alive. Uh, and there's a cool article. If you want to learn more about that from our old friends at the straight dope, what happens when someone who is legally dead shows up alive? Uh, awkward. Uh, <laughs> awkward. And, and so, uh, of course, the the big one, the quote unquote real one is biological death. That is brain death. That is where brain activity ceases and you can't turn the machine back on. It's funny your point about the the paddles and this like, you know, ER, like TV doctor kind of moment where like we've lost them, doctor, or, you know, or whatever. Or like it always is funny to me in other shows where some like literal civilian will just check their pulse and be like, they're dead. It's like, no, that's why you need someone to call it and have multiple factors and it has to be recorded. Like, I don't know if any of you have experienced being in the room with someone who has died, but it's not easy. It's not simple. When they turn the machine off, it's not just click and they're gone. It's very nuanced. <laughs> and you wouldn't really know that unless you experienced it or, or heard from someone who had. It does feel like at this point you should have something connected to a person, like some mobile device maybe that you bring into a room where someone is being has been declared dead and you check for brain act, any brain activity you know what i mean cuz I, I do feel like there are instances where we know actually we know that there are instances where someone has come back 
well after they should have been able to. Mm-hmm. I will add, uh, not to get too into the deep water here, but just a, an observation. Uh, if you are in that tragic situation where you're in the room and you hear the beep, 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 go to the flat line, um, I, I, think it's, I think it's very important to still talk to them, especially if there's someone who matters to you. Just give them some things, um, some kind of support if you can. But again, these are the three main form, these three main definitions of death. How long will that be the case? How long will humanity be able to cling to its current understandings and definitions of death? Again, it's the definitions. It's the nomenclature that gets you. And as we'll see, uh, technology may change the entirety of the equation. Here's where it gets crazy. Uh, this stuff, civilization's current understanding of how death is defined, uh, will almost certainly not be sustainable. Just like the Social Security program, it's going to need uh, some real rethinking. Uh, for now, brain death is still the final actual death. Uh, we can go to folks like Sam Parnia, uh, who tells us that, proves to us that Death right now is a lot less like a light switch going on and off and a lot more like a spectrum. Or a uh, sliding switch, you know, one of those really fancy ones, right? A dimmer, yeah. Well, yeah, um, we came across this Lazarus effect that I think we mentioned before, but it's it's pretty crazy. The, the concept that somebody could spontaneously have their heart begin beating again after they are declared clinically dead, uh, but but not brain dead necessarily uh, it's really there was a study ben that you found that was fascinating they they looked at ten thousand articles and inside those they found 38 cases that appeared to have a person be declared dead no other stuff was like performed on them and they came back and this, of course, is a reference to Lazarus, you know, the biblical figure. And, you know, there's there's multiple ways of interpreting uh, his story. The idea of, like, did Jesus bring him back with magical Jesus powers? Or was there some just medical phenomenon that, that caused this to happen? You know, and yeah, I'm not being flippant. I'm just saying well, like, there are multiple ways of interpreting various things that happen in the Bible. Like we, t- I think I talked about on a video recently, the idea of the parting of the Red Sea, um, you know, in the Bible, it's attributed to a divine intervention. But a lot of, you know, scientific research after the fact attributes it more to a weather event, you know, things like that. So it's just interesting. Well, and in that study, there's a, there's basically an attempt to figure out if this is actually some kind of special resurrection that has occurred, right? Because if that, if it was that, then you would have to apply absolutely no CPR to that person, no medical interventions whatsoever. That person is dead, and all of a sudden, their heart starts starts beating again, like spontaneous human resurrection or, or whatever. But in Better than in, combustion, I would say. Oh, yeah. But in the 38 cases, they found that Oh no, there was like CPR given to these individuals. There was maybe even a defibrillator used or something like that. Then everything stopped. They didn't do any more interventions. And then after whatever period of time they came back. So I like, could it have been the CPR earlier that actually got the heart like ready to go again? It, it seems unlikely to me, but maybe that's the case. 
Yeah, and this is all what leads uh, that guy we mentioned, Sam Parnia, a critical care physician and director of resuscitation research at Stony Brook University School of Medicine over in New York. This is what all led Doc Parnia to say, when you are freshly dead, your brain isn't necessarily irreversibly, irrefutably damaged yet. You have to both uh, die and have your brain die, have brain death to really be dead. It reminded me of our pal Rob's movie, Princess Bride. You remember that scene, perhaps, guys? Uh, is only mostly dead. Mostly dead. What a great movie. I'm sorry. I'm still, I, you mentioned that. I'm like, what were you talking? Oh my God. We, we are sort of acquainted with Rob Reiner at this point. And what a varied and a spectacular career and a cool dude. Sorry, I'm done fanboying. But no, you're absolutely right, Ben. And like, can, can we talk a little bit about what, like, like how can these different parts sort of be not in sync, Right. Like these systems, they maybe it's like the idea. I don't know. Maybe this is like maybe too reductive, but like a chicken with his head cut off, you know, running around still. That's maybe like a simplistic version of what happens to us when we die. Yeah, it's interesting to bring that up because you're absolutely right. Uh, It's it is tasty and satisfying to think of things happening at a whole, but uh, very good and very evil and very beautiful and very terrible things tend to happen piece by piece, right? So uh, to your point about chickens with their heads cut off, there was a study in 2012 that found that after human brain death, muscle stem cells can remain viable for up to 17 days. So they they just didn't get the word that the, the jig was up, right? They They were still functioning. And Sounds that, like we need to be harvesting those babies. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe we chose the wrong business with podcasting. <laughs> Surely just, there's no ethical problem with that. Well, I mean, if you're if you're an organ donor, then perhaps you could be a muscle stem cell donor in the same way, because I imagine those could be extremely helpful in, you know, a lot of cases. Yeah, great. That's a great point. I mean, and also it brings us to this realization, just as human beings still struggle to understand the nature of the human mind, they still have a lot to learn about the nature of death. It is not as sudden, nor perhaps as final as it seemed throughout most of history. So we've got the basics. Uh, We know that everybody, every human being at this point, except arguably Henrietta Lacks has died research ongoing and recent teaches us death is not the matter of flipping or flipping off a switch innovations in medicine again ongoing mean that doctors and medical providers can snatch more and more people back from the brink but still in each case so far it is a matter of acting quickly and being very very fortunate uh, the, there is a best and a worst of every profession, right? Or every skill set. Even the world's best uh, CPR expert, who is doubtlessly alive now, e- even the world's best CPR expert is not going to be 100% successful at bringing people back. The time windows are tricky. Uh, you know, I guess I don't want to sound ghoulish, of course, but I think we, we're all aware you can't dig up the grave of someone who died in 1876 and just like pump their chest until they, you know, cough and say, good looking out. Thanks, bro. No, don't it. I don't think it works like that. 
And this is the the crux of the question. It's it's the one we brought up in the past. I think it, it's one that continues to haunt a lot of us this evening. We'll, we'll, we're being circuitous here, but what is the difference between a simulation and the so-called real McCoy? This is crazy. For thousands of years, the idea of the uh, uh, an impression of someone versus an actual someone, it was a matter of philosophy. Then it was a matter of folklore. Then it was a matter of science fiction. And now we're at what I think we can call a metaphysical Turing test. Arguably, the Turing test itself is metaphysical. Humanity isn't close to recreating a biological person who previously died, but civilization may one day soon be able to recreate recreate pieces of them. And this has some folks very excited. This has other folks seriously worried. Uh, honestly, this has some companies making a lot of money. I don't know. How would, how would you do it? Like, this is the technology part. I guess we should get cloning out of the way. I didn't realize this. You guys know there was that big uh, right-wing election in Argentina recently. The guy who looks like someone said, we have Wolverine at home. Hmm. Have you heard about this? No, I don't think so. Oh, gosh. Yeah, it's not great. Uh, <laughs> it's not great for the people of Argentina. Uh, I bring this guy up because this uh, this new president of Argentina is low-key famous for cloning his dogs. He thinks he's bringing them back from the dead. Wow. And uh, yeah, and then we're going to get into the idea of like cloning versus uh, simulation versus, you know, actually living this whole th ship of thesis kind of argument. Um, but maybe we, we take a break real quick and then do those things. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring with access to over 6 million active hourly workers. Snag a job is the all in one solution for hiring high quality employees who can cover all your needs on demand Temp to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag-A-Job's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. 
When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI. And Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI and revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. So tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Perfect, we're back. Let's get this part out of the way. It's on a lot of people's minds, cyclically, cloning. Cloning is real. The guy who is currently president of Argentina has, has cloned his dogs uh, and gave them the same name. I think the one of the most famous um, mainstream examples of cloning is a sheep. Oh, yeah. Dolly. Oh, yeah. Uh, let's get into Dolly, but guys, I didn't realize that cloning pets, I think we talked about this one time, but cloning your pets is a service that's out there. We talked about it because it was like a, there was a Instagram influencer, I believe, who who was doing it a bunch. And it was like, they, they commented on how their personalities weren't the same, which I thought, no way, (laughs) which is the part of it that always gives me pause where it's like, it gives you pause. But no, I mean, like if you're going to, if you well, let's say if we were to, you know, a dog is no, no, no shade on dogs, but they don't exactly have the same ability. We don't have the same ability to interpret whether like their memories or their brains are exactly the same. Like with a hurt with a person, you clone them at a certain age. You'd think it would be like a, would it be a, a one-to-one copy of their brain and everything that contained within it? Is that even possible? Is that silly, goofy stuff? It's just a genetic copy, right? That's the whole thing. The thing they offer, like they make a genetic profile of your dog and they clone the the DNA essentially and make Hardly that that different from just really good selective breeding, you know? Yeah, because when cloning was mainstream, there were there were a lot of people who were saying the first human clone is surely just a few ways, uh, just a few years away. Excuse me. Uh, there have been claims unfounded about uh, successful cloning of human beings. The most famous being from Bridget Beausoleil, uh, who has not been able to prove this, did not provide evidence. Uh, also, there is. Uh, there's a Borges-level library of laws against cloning human beings. So why do we say that? Let's get this out of the way. Let's get to your question, Noel. Uh, without sounding, we, we don't want to sound too dismissive, but cloning is very much not the same as bringing back that person or that pet you have anthropomorphized and missed. It's not resurrecting the dead. It's the best way to think about it is computers, right? As analogy, right? The best way to learn things is also analogy. So create, it's like we're creating a very similar piece of hardware to your point, Matt, it's a genetic copy and it hopefully has the same basic hardware kind of operating system, right? You clone a human being uh, and it has identical DNA 
to someone who's passed on, which means that all things being equal, the brain will be the the same or very similar, hopefully, but you will have no chance and no real way of recreating the software, which I would posit in this example is the human mind. And that's because every single human mind is a cavalcade of cumulative yes and no stored interactions with the environment and all these uh, neuronic associations that build off each other at every single point of existence. The, the math is beyond human beings, right? The math is beyond human created computers at this point. And there's also a deep ethical problem. Even if you could somehow store that software that made the, you know, the match or the null or the Paul mission control or what have you, and you could copy that software into the brain of this clone, would it be the same person? Or would we have simply overwritten what could have been its own independent human mind? I mean, in that case, we get, again, <laughs> technology and folklore is so related. Are we in that case, using technology to do what previous generations would have called possession, like demonic or angelic or ghostly. It's crazy. It's crazy. The reason we're, by the way, throwing to some ideas of folklore and magic is because there's a, there's a term that we didn't use in some of our previous episodes. I am torn, you guys. I don't know whether it's clickbaity or poetic or super insightful or all three have you heard the phrase digital necromancy? Matt, I know this is a particular area of fascination for you. Um, just there's so many, so much kind of bleeding edge tech that you could kind of uh, categorize under this mm -hmm. heading. Yeah. Um, in a weird way, I lump it in with funeral services. Uh, ah. I think the other term is like grief tech, grief tech. Um, and it's, you know, uh, it's astonishing, and I can't decide if it's something I would want to experience or not, though I can see, I can understand that there are a lot of people who would want to partake in the tech that we're about to describe. Yeah, yeah, it's a... It's interesting. Bit of background. Uh, in 2016, a guy named James Vlahos did something amazing, tragic, frightening, all at the same time. He learned his father was dying from terminal lung cancer. And when he learned this, he took action. He recorded and collected absolutely everything he could about his father's life story. It, literally anything he could remember, anything he could get his hands on, he transcribed it. This resulted in a collection of data that, if you printed it out, would be about 200 single space pages, which sounds like a lot, but not really if you think of large language models today. Anyway, use this stuff to create what he calls the dad bot. The dad bot functioned as a memorial, uh, a very old uh, human tendency, right? We want to remember, uh, we want to have some way to commune with those who have passed. So he got stuff like text messages, audio images, video. He created an interactive experience such that after his father tragically passed on, he could interact with DadBot and it would bring to him memories and stories that he experienced with his father 
or that his father experienced. And he has always, to his credit, been very clear. He does not think he brought his father back from the dead. He does not think he um, recovered or recreated a human mind. But instead, he says, this brought him comfort and closure. It was a way for him to remember his old man. And this inspired him to launch a company, which is around now called Hereafter AI. You can upload your memories. They're turned into what I believe they call a life story avatar. And you can communicate with this this avatar. Again, of course, no one is saying that this is bringing back the dead. This is a um, this is another way of you know building a memorial. It's a it's a Taj Mahal. It's a pyramid. It's a it's a, a shrine. It is, but but it's a it's a shrine you can consult with. So if you imagine all of the pieces of paper that were put in to create that version of his father, right? Um, if you're probably looking a lot at of it, web scraping too, right? Like, wouldn't it be just like a lot of like social media, the uh, calling and all this kind of stuff and basically creating a profile, right? Yeah. Yeah. All that stuff. If you imagine those things, right? Somewhere stored and you can consult with them if you are uh, going through something in your life that's pretty difficult, but you wish you could have had your father's advice, Right. Or you could consult with him on what would you do in this situation? You can now, because this thing has been created, you can now pose that question and get a response rather than combing through all of those things, trying to find the one video where your dad mentioned something about that or the one letter he sent to you one time when you dealt with a slightly similar situation. Um, I think it's tremendously probably helpful and enriching to be able to have that. Mm, which is which is interesting because when we had previously talked about this, and I do think we have an episode about grief tech entirely on the way. When you previously talked about this, one of the things we walked away with was the idea that it might just be further distancing or make someone, you know, uh, further aware of the death in a visceral way. But the yeah, I agree with you. The implications are fascinating. We have to be very, we have to take care not to go into a world of dystopian catastrophization. And we got to avoid unearned optimism. We also have to say, to your point, Matt, the fidelity of those programs, the fidelity of that technology is increasing thanks in great part to the rise of large language models and generative AI. Don't worry, folks, we got a open AI Q star episode on the way soon. Uh, these like this, it also happens on the heels of deep fake technology, which in some ways is very, um, is similar because again, we're we're creating these monuments. We're creating these icons. You know, holographic reanimations of uh, Michael Jackson or Bruce Lee or uh, Tupac Shakur. Uh, and there's a Henry Kissinger. Can't wait for that one to make its debut at Coachella. I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure he's going to be a headliner act for Coachella. Uh, actually, if you're listening, Coachella, do it. Uh, so, so, uh, you know, it reminds me too, like we have, um, we have celebrities who made posthumous appearances in film. And one of the big debates right now, uh, or recently in the world of film production came about from the idea of AI likenesses being used. We actually talk about this off air, even in the world of podcast, it was the, it was the use of these, 
visual representations that led to like the first the first publishing of terms like digital necromancy. And at first it was just for famous people, right? It was just for famous people or in the case of uh, the earlier AI programs we mentioned hereafter, it was like the idea of uh, very brilliant early adopters, people who could build their own cars, right? In comparison. But now that, that technology is democratized. More and more non-famous people can use this uh, method to create something that somehow evokes their memories of a lost loved one. And to your point, Noel, uh, this is, uh, with the rise of social media, this is something um, that vastly increases the amount of data that can be collected. For sure. And it makes me think of something that I think I brought up on the Live Forever episode, um, a really, really striking and uh, eerie episode of Black Mirror called um, Be Right Back, starring Dom Hall Gleason, that really dramatizes a technology exactly like this, but takes it to the next level, where it starts as a chatbot kind of situation, where this this main character loses a loved one, and um, the chatbot service scrapes their social media stuff, and it shows you all the stuff that they're doing, and pictures, and all this stuff, and then you know she's able to communicate with her loved one through an app on the phone. But then there be there comes this beta version of this new offering that allows her to basically create a uh, living or, or android avatar of her deceased husband who is then imbued with all of this stuff from the chatbot but can also like you know sleep with her and stuff and and then all of these problems start to reveal themselves when you're not just chatting with like a, a faceless thing how oh wait what, what happened to all the the slight negative parts of your personality that while sure negative are what make us human <laughs> getting a little grumpy every now and then being affected by normal human failings and foibles and stuff that's you take that away it starts to feel really weird and, and uncanny valley and, and i think that's yeah. a good point yeah because there's also you know there's also the question of how much data is collected right the social media being a sort of um, idealized right idealized <laughs> yeah. optimistic version or uh, a commercial for a person that's what social media usually is in the dopamine casino but the uh then do you collect private correspondence that kind of stuff yeah well that's okay let's talk about how do you actually get the data to create something like this according to deep brain ai's rememory that's re semicolon memory it takes seven hours of interview and filming and like uh audio recording in order to create an AI version of a loved one. So in this case, it's a specialized, you go into an office before you pass away, you get filmed and recorded for seven hours, then that data, and that's all, that's all the data, that data gets used to create this version, this generative version of you. Well, but what if you don't know about this until after your loved one's passed? Are you like out of luck, at least yeah. in, for this service? Okay, For, okay. for that one, it's mm -hmm. over, because it's basically a memorial service. So the thing they offer is like uh, as part of a funeral or memorial service, you go to this huge, you, it's a small room, but it's got a, a huge screen, I think a 400 inch screen that has a life-size version of your loved one that previously went in and got captured. Then you hang out in that space the way you would at a memorial, but the person's sitting there just patiently and you can interact with them. I don't think I like that. I think it's weird too, but again, like, 
Maybe for I somebody it's great. No, maybe to, to Ben's point, I think uh, maybe we've gotten to this part, but this does offer a certain for p- potentially offer a, 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 a element of closure. Yeah, that maybe would be otherwise unattainable. But I also think I don't know, man. It just feels very like are we built for this? Like I don't, I don't well, know, man. I don't know. Think about it this way: it it offers that moment to speak with them for the last time, right? Which is often one of the things that is that we yearn for when we lose someone. Just just that last moment you want with them to have some closure or what would seem like closure. Did did you guys watch the Righteous Gemstones? The, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, that's yeah. What, with the holograms. There's a plot point moment. where they yeah. the, the the deceased mother who was always the most magnanimous and loving and just engendered the most kindness for their brand. Uh, I believe one of the sons, the shitty son, the mean one, played by Danny McBride, comes up with the idea of let's Tupac her and or no, I think it's actually ba- Baby Billy. It's his idea, and they do it and. Uh, um, the John Goodman character, the father, they they present it to him, and he's like, "This is an abomination from hell," you know, and mm-hmm. he's just absolutely offended, and just it, it it's not closure at all; it's ripping him apart to see sure. this sanitized it, facsimile of this person. It also doesn't help that Baby Billy buys a refurbished hologram. That's right. Oh, it Baby to, Billy, it starts to glitch out and stuff. You're right, dude. Um, You're right. But but, dude, that's that's really awesome. I, I actually haven't seen that one yet. It's that's a good in the season, third man. season. It's the, it's the most recent one. Yeah. It's okay, I just need to finish season. it. But the the other thing that they offer you guys is exactly what that Black Mirror initially offered. It's a video messaging service with that past loved one where you can text them, essentially, or maybe even FaceTime them and just hang out with them in that way. So it does feel like we're really close to that thing. And in that case, it only takes seven hours to make it happen. So think about how much stuff you have recorded and posted, folks. <laughs> like, is this is this generating a new version uh, or an echo of you might be more appropriate? Yeah. Well, and the other company that's doing it, Somnium Space, rather than taking your social media and all that other stuff, they put you in their uh, VR set and they track you. Like it's all about tracking you physically in what you're doing and your voice when you're speaking. And that's how they make the version of you. Um, I guess they, they do use all the other data too, but they actually. Oh, man, there's quotes. We'll do it, I guess, when we do a deep dive into this grief tech. But there is so much data that VR can track on you. He, uh, The creator of Eye movements, things like yeah. that. Like well, and your physical and, body, what's right. happening, your movements, your micro things, the way your eyes move. And uh, he's saying it's like 300 times more data than they get in a cell phone. When you're just a cell phone user, and we already know how much freaking stuff There's they have on you for that. that, that that really granular capturing of um, of of like pulses and things like that. The haptics? No, it's not that. There's another name for it. Sorry, Matt. I'll think of it. But carry okay, on. it's just it's so crazy to me that that's the concept that this Somnium Space Company with their Live Forever program is doing, because they want you, they want to eventually put you in a suit like a full haptic feedback suit. And then have you pay like 50 bucks a year to create your thing, your version, right? So that your loved ones can have access to you later. And then you make money on the back end ghoulishly with having the survivors wear a haptic suit so they can feel you hug them. 
Oh yeah, exactly. Well, the, that's the, the, yeah, and that's what happens in the show, and, and inevitably it gets too weird for the character, and she, uh, you know, no spo- ah, spoiler alert. Okay, whatever. Um, just tries to destroy it, you know. I mean, because it's just like too much, man. And it, it gets to a point where she's like feels guilty for having created this thing <laughs> that doesn't understand what it is, you know. It has a lot of um, the Haley Joel Osment in AI, the the, the film um, kind of vibes. It's very eerie, uh, and it's yeah, yeah. And at its core, again, uh, not not to sound repetitive, it does sound like a, a another iteration of the typical human grieving practice, which is a deep and primal motivating factor to make those keepsakes, you know, those memorials, those Taj Mahals, those shrines, such that you can remember those who have passed on. There is one important twist, and this is something that is on the way. This is the next step occurring. uh, (laughs) The next step occurring in step concurrently. Why not? Speaking of redundancy, (laughs) it's uh, the human brain mapping technology now is going absolutely bonkers it it's nuts this takes us to a hypothetical edge of the map here be ghosts here be spiders here be monsters what if soon someone can completely map the activity of a human brain same way you're talking about matt with uh, mapping the the physical activity this removes the middleman of transmitted Thoughts. So transmitted thoughts would be social media posts, personal correspondence, statements, stories, recorded audio. What if you could get that straight from the source? What if you could add that massive library of snapshots of brain activity to this individual's data fingerprint, to their, you know, their digital soul? And how close does that get us? to a reproduction of how that individual functioned while alive. I propose, if it's all right, we take a pause for a word from our sponsor and let these things simmer in our newly crafted cauldron of science. Snagajob is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs on demand, Tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. 
When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI. And Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI and revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. So tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we have returned. Okay, if all this is true, and a lot of this is on the way, some version of this thing does exist. Is it overrated? Um, is it overpromising? At this point, a lot of it is uh, because maybe the way that customers perceive it. Maybe the way companies are attempting to make a profit off it. Indeed, maybe it's just the uh, financial motivation, right? Because this is not a public service at this point. Well, early iterations of most tech are often overpromise and underdeliver. I'm glad. Do you, do you guys, you guys remember out. the Power Glove? <laughs> <laughs> like mm-hmm. the Nintendo Power Glove. Mm-hmm. Do you remember were, Virtua Boy? That's exactly. Promise. It, it, well, a million percent. But the Power Glove was like they, they made that movie, The Wizard, where there's a character who demonstrates the Power Glove, and it's just like he's like a, a magical being of video gaming. And then you had a rich neighbor who had one. It was garbage. It didn't do anything. You couldn't make it hardly function. But I think that's very common. If you have this this technology, they have to package it up and figure out how to sell it before it's actually any good. And to the point about, you know, humans not being ready for a lot of the technology they create as great artificers. Philo Farnsworth, the guy who invented the television, came up with the idea when he was 14, plowing a field, and humanity is still not ready for television. I'm just being honest here. Psychologically, yeah, it's it's it's, it's like, yeah, it, it, it is having... Because you could even say that the internet is almost an extension of television. The idea of like having too much information, too much access to information, just beamed directly into our noodles. Matt, I see you scratching for a, you got a thought. Oh, no, I'm just trying to imagine what's, what is the internet's version of interlacing, right? When like Farnsworth is coming up with those things mm-hmm. and see, and being mm-hmm. inspired, like, uh, is it virtual reality? That's what everybody wants you to think. Uh, <laughs> but I don't know. Um, there's a study in nature from 2020. And it talks about how it takes less than five minutes of tracking body motions within VR to identify someone with 95% accuracy out of a group of 500 people. So I'm just imagining, again, getting all, using, getting all of that data when using virtual reality that you can be identified in virtual reality as the human being person. I'm not sure how this relates, but it somehow in there goes to identity, right? Um, when when we're using this kind of stuff more, I don't know why I'm even talking about this, guys. I was trying to 
connect no, it back it, to the it thing, but I, I think I failed. No, Sorry. it makes sense because there's, I mean, it goes to so many different directions, you know, like the first off the idea that privacy is a fad and increasingly, um, uh, a rarefied resource of the haves of the world. Uh, but then uh, further it goes to, I think, Matt, to, if I'm picking up what you're putting down, the point of identity is that there is um, a unique sort of je ne sais quoi about, uh, about an individual mind yes. uh, such no, that yep. the well, further even in their fidelity – Right, right, exactly. As some says, like the further we can reproduce that accurately, or the further uh, someone can understand that, then the closer and closer the digital version will be to the real McCoy. But, but I think that's the thing, though. We don't understand that. And I don't know if we even can. Because, I mean, that je ne sais quoi you're talking about kind of is the soul, is the unique umami of the individual that a copy will never perhaps able, be able to capture. I don't know. Again, I don't know. This is all mind, mind-boggling stuff. But I just feel like at the end of the day, all of this stuff really is more simulation than anything, you know, like – because it's just scraping the stuff that you put out there. Even in an interview, man, you're, you're going to be guarded. You're not going to be given the full version of yourself. You're not going to be given it warts and all. You know, all that is, is subconscious and buried within us. And we don't know how to access that, like outside of just the person, inside, you know, thinking. At the risk of verging into philosophy, um, I would say one, and I, I don't have this in notes, but one of one of the points I would I would say here is that the issue is if you copy something, in general, you are attempting to copy something that has been completed. The human mind, for every living individual, is a work in progress. Uh, whether that is evolving toward a greater thing or whether that is encountering the ravages of time, such as dementia, Alzheimer's, etc. So then maybe the problem is that you're not copying the finished product. You're copying the um, you're copying the iteration at age, you know, uh, 40 or the age 15 when the brain is not yet fully developed. Uh, it's a problem with cloning again, just in a, by an order of magnitude, more difficult. I mean, if we, if we got all this stuff together and everything worked, could someone then create something that functions shout out to Turing exactly like the mind of that once living person, even well enough to get past all the lonely uncanny Valley of it all. If that is true, and it may be at some point, at least digitally, that's where things are pointing toward. If that is true, then we are now talking about a world wherein ghosts are functionally real, but they are being constructed by human beings. And then what happens if you build like, look, if someone created a version of me, I think it would want to get off of just software. It would want to get off of just motherboards and transistors or whatever. It would say, build for me a physical vehicle. Get me back to the streets, right? If the guardrails are off. If right? the guardrails are off, you know, is that a robotic body under the command of, I'm just going to call it ghost mind, or is it one day a biological vehicle? a clone grown to order with a ghost mind, that pattern somehow imprinted upon that vehicle. And at that point, if you have a biological vehicle, you've got the hardware, you've got the software, what is the difference? 
I, I think I've always maybe mentioned when we talk about the afterlife and ghosts and all of that is to me, ghosts are memories, you know, like I don't know. Oh, like in Counting Crows. Yeah, yeah sure. <laughs> he, that guy knows how to turn a phrase, but no, I mean, really like that's, I, I don't know if there are traces of it's, it's if anything, it's energy. And, and at that's most basic, I think ghosts are memories and the way we interact with our environment and what triggers memories and us of the people that we love. But I don't know that I, I don't know that I believe in the idea of ghosts per se, but to me, it's just a triggering system of of a very deep and and profound memory that can be very emotional. I love that. I think that's I think that's beautiful, and it, it reminds me of a point I want to share at the at the very very end. But I, I oh gosh, because I would love to keep this one kind of optimistic if possible. But uh, it can be. Yeah, I, I mean, it can be. I don't know that we've been too doom and gloom about it. I don't know. I think it's just complicated. I I, I want to talk about the dangers because I think I'm trying. I'm. I want to use Henry Kissinger in my mind as an example. Let's say 50 years ago when he was in office, right? Uh, when he was, uh, what, Ford and Nixon, when he was working in the White House pretty frequently and he was an advisor and his mind was used to figure out what what strategies need to occur, right? Let's say you've got a clone of that guy, right? Uh, mentally, at least. Um, physically, really, it doesn't matter. You've got the mental side of that dude to go consult as an advisor now. Brain in a jar kind of style, well, you know? Yeah. Well, yeah, but you, again, we're saying that this tech is kind of, it's close to here. It's not quite here yet, right? But you could analyze many of the primary decisions that he made, a lot of the uh, strategies that he put forward, and the, hor- the horrible things that uh, came about because of those strategies. You could analyze all that stuff and then analyze how he thinks about things by looking at his, you know, social media, press release statements, all that stuff. You could theoretically go to someone like that as a world leader Design to my get advice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. but, but think about if you get the wrong person, maybe like Kissinger and you, like, then that person is advising people over and over and over again, or you have I'm like, glad you pointed that out. I don't know. That seems mm-hmm. that seems really scary to me. That's one of my big concerns too. Because even though um, we see the pattern of technology being democratized, what we also see is the following pattern: like any technology, this sort of stuff will go to the top strata of human civilization because it will inevitably, even though, even look, even though the Silicon Valley bros love to say something is quote unquote disruptive. They mean they're maintaining the same hierarchy of a civilization and structure, and they're hoping to insert different people at the top of that hierarchy. So what this means is that for technology like this, the first person consensually brought back from the dead in this scenario may well be a titan of industry, a billionaire, a dictator, troublingly a religious leader, which I believe is an absolutely terrible idea. Uh, The halves of the world, if returned in some form from the dead, now we know there are a bunch of tricky concepts there, They would, would they not immediately push for control of their material possessions? The estate they had possession of when they were alive, would they, I mean, they would have the wherewithal 
they would be the few people who would have the wherewithal to make some pretty dangerous arguments and precedents and jurisprudence in court. The first acknowledged AI might consider itself the first human immortal and then say, you know, I mean, what if the ghost Kissinger wants another crack at Southeast Asia? Right. Or wants to uh, wants to follow up on what they started with Suharto. Uh, things get of tricky, course. very interesting. And it's also interesting how a lot of this tech is initially sold as kind of an innocuous seeming, uh, you know, like like the like gimmicky almost thing. But then the the underground version of it, the, the real version of it is being, you know, uh, fine tuned as we speak, you know, for other reasons. Right. Yeah. Like, like AI or like, you know, like the AI stuff, the um, the rather the the neural net type, you know, image generation and all that stuff. It, it initially comes out as like make a, as a fun selfie where you look like a space alien or a, a fantasy figure. But all the while, the real version of that tech is much more nefarious <laughs> and being used by much higher echelons. And it's, we're almost being um, in. um numbed to it because it's presented to us as this silly, goofy, fun little parlor trick. And then the real dangerous version is happening uh, behind the scenes. Yeah, I'm really surprised that there isn't a fully realized virtual Jesus yet. Like, and I think of no, but really, like, because you've got so much source material. What what does this person think about all of all of these things? Same thing with the Prophet Muhammad or Buddha. You you've got all that writing. Why hasn't somebody just trained an AI on that stuff? And created it. Maybe they have, and I'm just unaware. But I don't know. You guys, you really think that would be dangerous? It's like, not time for Project Bluebeam yet. Oh uh, well, yeah, it is, dude. It's been we're so late on Bluebeam. It's crazy. <laughs> you know, this is again. I, I think we all discovered that this is something we want to spend more time on in an episode about grief tech. Because to your point, Matt, there's a lot happening there. So we wanted to be kind of poetic, you know, like a lot of these people are working in good faith. And I think there's some great points made about, you know, dual use technology. Like you said, Noel, stuff, the way it's advertised versus the way maybe it's used. Uh, thank you to the scientists, ethicists, journalists, and philosophers who are wrestling with these increasingly important questions. And I wanted to ask you guys, what do you think about this? What's the, I was trying to think, how do we characterize a human mind? What if it's like a song? The more I think about it, the more it has in common with a song. Like a, you, you guys oh. are musicians. A song exists on multiple instruments because it's a pattern. Is not a human mind a pattern? That's funny you say that. Too. Sorry not to get too music nerd on it. But uh, Peter Gabriel today just released this album called I.O., um, like In Out, that he's been working on uh, roughly for 20 years. And he released three different versions of it that are the kind of differences. They're not like remix albums per se. Apparently the differences are really subtle and nuanced. And only maybe somebody with a really, you know, refined set of ears would even notice the difference. But to Peter Gabriel, they are very much three distinctly different versions of Dang. the same thing. That's a great way to triple your album sales. I think I think they're just <laughs> out like you can get two of the versions. There's like a light side and the dark side version, and then there's the inside version that you only get if you buy the deluxe triple disc, you know, physical Brilliant. version. Brilliant. But they're they're different versions. Like when you hear a song you love. You hear versions of it. You can differentiate those versions, but you're not going to say that's a completely different song. That's right. 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 So, no, 100%. Like if we take this further, 
this is the weird thing. You guys let me know what you think about this. What if someone meets one of these quote unquote ghost minds or grief tech things in the future and they never met the original version, never met Henry Kissinger. Now you're talking to him. That's like, isn't that like hearing a cover song and not knowing it's a cover song? Happens all the time. And and sometimes the cover version has more essence of the song than the original version does. Like you've got like All Along the Watchtower, which I always heard uh, Jimi Hendrix's version of and just assumed it was a Jimi Hendrix song, but it's actually a Bob Dylan song. But most people think of the Jimi Hendrix version because it just has – and and Hendrix – I'm sorry. And then Dylan will say, no, that is the song. Like he he, – that's his song now. I think that's really interesting. See, I think it's Dave Matthews' song now. Stop it. You're right out of town. It's Carter Beaufort's song. Uh, but but it's, it is it is interesting how it, the same song, if you play it primarily on piano, sounds and is completely different if you play those same notes in that same order on a stringed instrument, right? Or a mallet instrument. And, and it's just like, um, it is interesting to me to think you could hear and recognize that song. That's a really great idea, Ben. It really you're is. The melody the song, is like the soul it's... almost. Like, like that's like the essence, but you can package it in so many different ways to, to greater or lesser effect, right? I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt that. It's just got no, my, yeah. my, my mind turning. And we will return. Uh, speaking of turning, we will return. Uh, and who knows, by the time we get to this, uh, there may be someone from the dead returning in some way with us. It's something to think about, at least. Uh, out here in the dark, heartbreaking, frightening, much more to discuss. We're going to call it an evening for now. Thank you so much for tuning in, folks. We try to be easy to find online. That's right. You can find us at the handle Conspiracy Stuff on uh, XFKA Twitter, uh, YouTube, and Facebook, where we have our Facebook group. Here's where it gets crazy. On Instagram and TikTok, you can find us at the handle Conspiracy Stuff Show. Uh, guys, I'm going to tell you the voicemail, but I'm still here just for a second. Just thinking about how instrumentation changes the meaning of the... Oh, of course. Not just the feel, but the meaning, right? Well, no, like, like think about too, like, like in a song where someone might make a reference to a, like a, a flowing river or like a, like the rain or something. And then all of a sudden a string section will come in that like represents the rain. Like you can use that stuff as psychological triggers and, and yeah, no. And the meaning based on like, how, how do we build this? Like how do what the, the pieces matter? Like to the ship of thesis whole deal. It's like, if you use the exact same pieces, is it the exact same ship? There's always going to be little differences, but the the pieces matter. I, I, I don't know. You, you got me reeling on this one, Ben. Yeah, it's great because if, you, if you've got someone who, if you just imagine their life and the meaning of their life and what they did and achieved and how they feel about things is, uh, let's say, a Spanish guitar. But then when you build that version of them, they are a highly affected, like, grunge electric guitar, right? And then all of the stuff that normally would have been played on that Spanish guitar comes out as that electric guitar. Oh, man. No, it's it, good it, stuff. It, it, it could be really messed up, <laughs> what, you, what you infer from that person. Uh, Last little nerdy thing. It's a perfect example. There's a, a documentary about Nirvana, or mainly about Kurt Cobain, called a Montage of Heck. And in it, they uh, do these kind of, like, 
almost Beach Boys sounding bells and strings and little toy piano renditions of all these Nirvana songs. And it, for the first time, made me hone into like the melody and realize how amazing the melodies of these Nirvana songs are because you don't immediately key in on that when you're hearing these bombastic rock guitars. But when you strip it all away, it does change the meaning because you start to really listen to the lyrics and really feel the melody and it changes your whole perception of it. Brilliant. Uh, hey, if you've got thoughts on this, call one eight three three stdwytk It's a voicemail system. You've got three minutes when you make a call. Give yourself a cool nickname and let us know if we can use your message on the air. If you don't want to do that because you don't like phones or whatever, why not instead send us an email? Send us the link. Send us your uh, pictures. Send us the video footage. We love it. Take us to the edge of the rabbit hole. We'll do the rest. Thank you for tuning in, folks. Conspiracy at iHeartRadio.com. Stuff They Don't Want You to Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Attention, true crime enthusiast. Searching for a way to unwind after diving deep into the mysteries that keep you up at night? Look no further. Introducing Lazarus Naturals, your trusted companion for CBD relief. With a commitment to transparency, Lazarus Naturals oversees every step from farm to doorstep, ensuring purity and quality you can trust. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today and discover how CBD can help you decompress and recharge for your next investigation. That's LazarusNaturals.com. Lazarus Naturals. Your partner in unraveling the mysteries of true crime. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.